Hello and welcome to Sprogcast, a radio show all about pregnancy, birth and early parenthood, hosted by Karen Hall and Mark Harris. Hello and welcome to episode three of Sprogcast, all about compassionate care. I'm Mark Harris. And I'm Karen Hall. We hope you enjoyed episode two, all about men in the birthing space. We've had some nice feedback and would really like to encourage listeners to get involved. Our Facebook page is the best way to get in touch. That's facebook.com slash sprogcast. If you're listening to this, then you probably know that we've dipped a toe in the water of going more high tech by uploading to SoundCloud and by adding some music. It's a learning process for us and we're gradually getting up to speed. In fact, one day soon we might have some adverts. Here's what they're going to sound like. Yeah, this episode of Sprogcast is brought to you by hard work and dedication on a purely voluntary basis. It costs money to get it out there and £75 would pay for distribution to SoundCloud for just one year. £50 would pay for a dedicated website. Now, in return, you would get a radio style advert, probably sounding a little bit more professional than this one at the beginning, middle and end of every episode of Sprogcast. Please contact us via our facebook.com. Is it backwards slash or forward it's slash? A forward um, slash, Mark. A fo- forward slash Sprogcast if you'd like to be our new sponsor. Thanks, Mark. That was great. And now on with the show. This episode is all about compassionate care during birth and in the early weeks of parenthood. Coming up, we've got a look at news and research, some book reviews and an interview with consultant, midwife and social media queen, Sheena Byram, talking about her life and work and her new book, The Raw Behind the Silence. So just coming to talk about our Facebook page, it's really exciting that people have um, started to interact with us. And we've got a couple of comments this week, one from Mandy Mentz, who suggests that we should talk about due dates. What she says is seeing so much on Kate, I assume she means the Duchess, being described as overdue when she's supposedly only a few days past her estimated due date. Overdue would be beyond the 37 to 42 week window, but many people seem to think the EDD is more like an expiration date. It's a really interesting comment. What do you think, Mark? Yeah, well, she's hit the nail on the head, hasn't she? You know, there is no due date. Now, there are some there are some maybe medical reasons why it's a good idea to know when a woman has reached 42 weeks or have an estimate of that. You know, Mary Hannon's work that suggests that that when you get to 42 weeks plus, potentially the, the percentage becomes less efficient um, when it comes to supporting the baby through the birthing process. And she found that statistically... Um, the mode of birth being cesarean section for women over 42 weeks went up quite significantly. Right. In terms of in terms of baby harm, there wasn't much of an effect. So th- there is some value in knowing this stuff. Right. And yeah. is, is it true that there's an increased risk of stillbirth after 41 weeks? So there may well be some recent studies, but from my historical reading, that there isn't a statistically significant risk of, of stillbirth and death. But of course, these things are never as clear cut as that. Mm. You know, you you have to look at studies like we were talking earlier and you have to um, look at the methodology of the study. Research only ever shows correlation and the design of the research study either enforces the sense in which you can extrapolate from that correlation or it encourages you, like in the iodine study, to just use that piece of research to wrap your chips in it. (laughs) Right, so that's a sceptical point of view from you there. Uh, Where there is a correlation, uh, and notice I mean correlation, not a cause and effect relationship, because there's never a cause and effect relationship. Quantum physics teaches us that. So there's only ever a correlation. Uh, We never arrive at truth through research. 
I can see why we do need to use research and evidence to be able to come up with guidelines because we need to know what good practice is and we need to be able to measure that to be able to show it. Yeah, no, I get that. I, I think the discussion around what, what's good is interesting because as soon as we apply a value, even just good, we, we're then moving from a set of values that that structure that kind of structure and almost in, impose a way of seeing upon us. Now, you know, for a, for a medical person steeped in the medical model, what they consider good it might be very different from someone else coming from a different perspective. So I think research is good and it guides our practice and it should. Good science should guide our practice. But very soon, you know, if we're not careful, uh, faulty science, dodgy science, incomplete science just informs our superstitions and our dogma. And that's to be resisted like the plague. <laughs> I'm just looking at a website called evidencebasedbirth.com, which I rather like, um, yeah, I and a, a 2012 article by Rebecca Decker, who um, from the language used is based in the US, um, but she's writing about this kind of um, use of evidence and doctors using it to um, encourage mothers to do what they, what the, they, the doctors, want them to do, Obst obstetricians. Right. So we're really saying that we haven't got strong enough um, evidence that it is necessary to kind of induce just because you've um, reached this window, the end of the window. Um, yeah. Well, see, the minute you call it a due date, um, you, you, you send people on a meaning-making journey, which means that once you get past it, I'm overdue. Yes. You know, you know what we need is a, a period of time in which the the you know the, the the kind of mystery of the birthing process may start. We don't even know what starts the birthing process, really. We have no idea. I mean, we know there's a certain release of hormones and all this kind of stuff, but we have no idea. You know, old wives' tales are old wives' tales because they've endured the test of time. So, so some of them might be valuable, but given no other medical reason, we're probably best just resting in the fact that the birth will start when it does. There was a very interesting piece of research last year, I think, from Alice Roberts, um, the, the scientist who, um, her theory is that labor starts when the um, baby's drain of energy on the mother's body becomes too great. Yeah, I like that. I, I think all of these models and, and metaphors are, are useful course she won't be waiting in the waiting room wondering whether a midwife will become available i'm sure she's not going hey william when's this midwife coming and she won't have you rolling up in your santa claus outfit either <laughs> and we've got a comment as well from joe taylor who um, has a suggestion for something we could talk about um, she says how about the emotional roller coaster a new mum often experiences in the first two weeks after the birth hormonal changes and the effect how to give positive and effective postnatal support just an idea it's a good idea joe we really like that and we might do a whole episode yeah. on that at some point yeah i think we should i think that's a great area of uh, exploration should we look at some of those news articles that, that you uh, harassed me with this week? <laughs> Let's do that. Cool. I, I, I particularly like the, the Cochrane review of this practice uh, called debriefing for women that um, experience some form of birth trauma. And over the 20 years that I've been a midwife, what that's really kind of meant 
has been that a midwife will sit down with the woman, usually not the, the family, not the partner, and kind of tends to reinforce the trauma through giving the woman more information. Did you see that study? I did. I've read it through. This is a recently published Cochrane review. Um, so you can find it on cochrane.org and we will put the link on the Facebook page published on the 10th of April this year, suggesting that it doesn't really help. The review was pretty conclusive that it doesn't really help. And that's been my intuition for, for a long time. And given the fact that in our society at the moment, we've spoken about it before, we've got higher levels of tocophobia, you know, the, the, the fear of birthing. And that's actually occurring in women that have never had a baby. We've also got uh, creeping higher levels of men reporting symptoms post being at a birth that sound very much like post-traumatic stress syndrome, mm. you know, like flashbacks, panic attacks, and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's time to, to begin to address um, these, these problems that are out there. So do you feel like um, revisiting a traumatic birth afterwards, you've, you've said it kind of, they relive the trauma. Um, yeah. If that's not helpful, what would be? In the trainings and stuff that I do, we speak a lot about how a human being encodes experience on the inside of us. You know, we we receive data from the world through our five senses and then we make sense of that data on the inside. We encode it in a certain way. And, you know, I've worked with, with women and men who have uh, issues around flashbacks and stuff like that. And the memory... The experience is in is kind of in, outworks itself inside them in a specific way, and and what I'm suggesting is actually it's how they have the experience structured, which is more important than maybe not more important, but it's going to be more effective in shifting the experience than talking over the details. So, what are the practical implications of that? Well, well, for example, I, I work with um, a woman, and this wasn't in a birth context, but she had experienced trauma and was struggling to sleep because she was having flashbacks, full-colour flashbacks. As we gained rapport with each other, I asked her to imagine that she was walking into a cinema and um, that she sat down and uh, I don't know what she had while she was there, whether it was popcorn or that sort of stuff. And she looked up at the screen and I asked her to put an image of herself on the screen, an image of her being relaxed, being, you know, feeling comfortable and all that kind of stuff. Long story short, Karen, so I don't want to go through the whole process. The idea is that she got to um, watch um, through her experience, but because she wasn't in her own body as she was watching it, the emotional response to the memory was different. We then had her run the experience back very fast. So having arrived at the, the end of the experience where she was comfortable and it was over, she then ran the experience back um, as many times as she needed in order to notice that her feelings were changing. Mm. And this kind of process led to that flashback disappearing. What I'm suggesting are there are a load of techniques, and these techniques focus more on the structure of how people are having the experience and on the content, whereas debriefing is focused on all... Oh, uh, you know, this happened, that happened, this happened, and and that tends to reinforce the experience mm. in my in my experience anyway. So you're kind of looking at a, more of a cognitive behavioural therapy type approach. God, that'd have been an easy way of saying it. Wouldn't instead it? of <laughs> instead of um, just sitting and talking to it, I guess more counselling 
uh, like you know proper clinical counseling rather than just sitting with somebody with some listening skills i don't want to yeah. denigrate midwives and health visitors and the people who do uh, these debriefs but perhaps they're not the right people well they're not unless unless they've had additional training yeah and, and I, the evidence around at the moment around cbt is beginning to suggest that it that it does bring some medium-term relief but but isn't necessarily a long-term answer to some of these problems that are quite deeply uh, embedded yeah. so i think you you hit hit the nail right on the head it's it's a collection of techniques that are looking to work with how the brain has the information encoded coupled with you know counseling that that maybe seeks to find insight in, into some of this stuff as well and probably all of this stuff needs to be embodied in a, in a midwife that has some experience of birth mm. you know but not just a midwife who's got the notes out and is going to go through the notes and uh reinforce the experience in a way that might not be healthy yeah and i suppose and this is so relevant to what we're talking about today the real answer is to go back to the roots of the problem mm. so if we're talking about improving compassion in midwifery care and that's certainly not saying that midwives aren't compassionate but perhaps the way the care is delivered comes with so many pressures and limitations yeah. that it's difficult sometimes to convey convey that in the best way well, I, you know, I, I love the book, The Roar Behind the Silence. There's there's loads of chapters in it that I could point to and say, yeah, I like that. I like Dean's chapter from Daddy Nature. Yeah. I think I think it's cool. I think his content is excellent. And he's, he's basically a, just a nice geezer. But, you know, I, I couldn't help thinking, right? I couldn't help thinking that it's okay to, to roar, but the direction of the roar probably should be on um, the environmental factors and the systemic factors that midwives and birth professionals have to deal with. If the environment is not conducive to producing the kind of states in midwives and other birth professionals that generate the hormonal response that leads to compassion, then it's difficult for that midwife to respond to the roar. I, I guess where I'm coming from, and I'm in danger of talking too much, Karen, and you can edit me as much as you like. I'm only joking it's, it's, about it's, that. <laughs> no, I like it. No, I like it. No, I enjoyed meeting you, by the way. It was really cool. I'm sorry we didn't spend enough time. Ah, never mind. You know, I'm doing a lot of work at the minute on my book. If Pinter and Martin are listening, that's definitely out in September. And, and I've been working on the whole male and female kind of dance of birth. And, you know, it kind of shocked me. And it sounds remedial, but... Well, men and women have the same hormones that work in their body. So, you know, I've got testosterone, you've got testosterone, you've got oxytocin, I've got oxytocin, certain amount of estrogen in, in, in me as estrogen in you. But how these hormones interact in the vast majority of men and women is very different. When a man's testosterone levels go up, his stress levels go down. When a woman's testosterone levels go up, her stress levels go up right. with it. So midwives are working in an environment which is putting them under enormous stress. There's no, I, I don't, there's not a, a week goes past when I don't speak to a midwife who is feeling worn out, burnt out and afraid because the environment she's in is not supporting her and nurturing her. So her oxytocin levels, which in a woman, rising oxytocin levels lead to reduction in stress. But high levels of testosterone in a woman inhibit oxytocin we kind of know that 
But we talk about it a lot when it comes to nurturing the environment, of nurturing the environment for a woman. The book is full of it. Yeah, you know? it really comes across, doesn't it? Not, not only, right, does um, the woman need that kind of environment. She needs to hear in your voice that you're kind and caring in order for oxytocin to be rampant. And that's really interesting. So it's not just the touch receptors of the skin that lead to oxytocin coming up and the sense of warmth. Obviously, that pathway is much older because it's you know based on mammalian development. But the neocortex now enables us to hear at an unconscious level kindness in other people's voices. So this poor midwife who's got every audit under the sun to cope with, every obstetrician with his self-imposed time limits upon birth to deal with she's now expected to be a method actor it's really hard for her to to be responding compassionately she's absolutely awash with testosterone very little by way of oxytocin inducing um stimulus she's not getting hardly any of that she now has to even sound kind and compassionate because if she fakes it the woman will know that at an unconscious level mm. So I think, you know, these midwives, uh, they need all the support and love and kindness that we can muster up. And the raw, as the book does point in that direction, should, shouldn't be at individual midwives. It should be at the system, yeah. you know, and um, it needs to change. So this is, is your idea of the doula box for midwives. Oh, yeah, that, that came out of my reading, to be honest. You know, is there a way that doulas and their clients could could think of ways of of stimulating oxytocin release in a woman, in a midwife? Because the vast majority of midwives are women. So anything we can do that will stimulate oxytocin in her will generate compassion from her and will reduce her stress levels. You know, if she starts to to, to be flooded with oxytocin, her stress levels will go down. So what could we put in a box? You know, what could we give her that would that would generate oxytocin? Most of your suggestions I saw on Twitter, the suggestions coming back were quite abstract things. They weren't tangible. Yeah. It wasn't chocolate. It was kindness, respect. Do you know, there there is a law that you might not have heard of. It's called the law of mumps and measles. Have you heard no. of it? So if, if I come to you, Karen, and I've got the mumps, that's the disease I've got, yeah, right? the mumps. But I tell you I've got the measles. What do you catch? Well, I'm going to say mumps. Exactly. You catch what I've yeah. got, not what I, not what I say. It wasn't I've a got. trick question. Okay. <laughs> no. So, so you catch what I've really got, not what I say yeah. I've got. And the trouble is, you know, you can use all the kind words you like, um, but if 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 kindness isn't your kind of state of being in that moment, people catch what you've got, not what you say you've got, and and that's why. Asking a midwife to be more compassionate and kind and all the rest of it without actually doing something to facilitate her kindness is, is just not, it's, it's just, in my opinion, it's not fair. So what you're saying is coming in with a clipboard and a checklist which has oh, kindness, oh, oh. compassion and um, so on on it and standing there while the midwife does her job so that you can tick off examples of kindness, that's not going to work. That woman over there who's looking after three women who's been on a 12 and a half hour shift, who is depleted in oxytocin, who goes home every night, you know, uh, worn out. Being able to step into her experience, even in a limited way, would help us to stimulate oxytocin flow in her, which is what she needs too. 
you know, she's a woman in the birth environment that needs oxytocin in order to generate this level of compassion that we're roaring at her about. Mm, yeah. So if, if um, the birthing woman happens to get one of the, one of the, is it 96 of you? One of the male midwives comes in, she's going to have to give him something to fix. Ch change the yeah. batteries in the TENS machine, will you? <laughs> well, you know, the thing about this rising testosterone level in men reducing stress, I, I am finding very interesting. And there are kind of, there are activities that produce testosterone in men, uh, things like having an objective, things like you know being being purposeful in what they do, things like sitting down uh, can reduce stress in in men because it seems to reduce the internal dialogue, which I, which I find really that fascinating. Is very interesting. And and that's my experience. You know, uh, when I sit down, I turn off. When my girlfriend sits down, she starts writing a list. Yeah. When a woman is involved in sex and has an orgasm, her levels of oxytocin go through the roof. When a man engages in sex, and, and of course he's going to orgasm because it's a piece of cake for us, isn't it? Um, his oxytocin goes through the roof. But the responses we have to oxytocin are different. She is enlivened. Uh, she, you know, wants to talk more or wants to do it again. You know, he wants to go to sleep, right? Mm -hmm. And these are these are stereotypes rooted in a biophysical phenomenon. I think it just supports what we already know, which is that men have goal-orientated sex and women enjoy the process. Yeah, well, some men, he says. <laughs> no. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> no, I want to, want to make this, this, this point, because Michel O'Donnell, and I've been listening to him recently, and I, I love him, he says that he noticed that when men move from presence to participation, uh, their impact on the oxytocin of women was profound and he saw a distinction between them being present and them participating i i think there's a way that that men can be informed about their hormonal changes in the context of birth so that just being present not feeling like they have to do anything becomes doing something itself yeah. and and that causes a rise in testosterone that leads to a lowering in their stress levels so that they can just be there you see, what happened was their panic led to activity, participation. Mm -hmm. Whereas when they were just present, Michelle Adon says, that's, that seemed to be okay. And uh, I think if we, if we explore that whole educational process for men, whereby they know that just being present is achieving a goal, then that will rise their testosterone. Level. That's really interesting. Would you like to talk about some of the other studies we've got? Tell me what you thought about that organic milk study. and iodine. That was quite funny. It was such a good example of the newspapers taking the article, taking the research and pretty much misunderstanding it. It was um, research from the University of Reading, published in the peer-reviewed journal of food chemistry, so a respectable piece of research there, um, and reported by the Daily Mail, uh, no, it was The Guardian, I do the Daily Mail a great disservice there, obviously. Um, <laughs> but it, I think the headline was pregnant women who switch to healthier organic milk may be putting the brain development of their unborn babies at risk. Now, very interestingly, the research was a comparison of the iodine levels in different kinds of milk. There was the point was made that iodine is important for brain growth. And no part of this study or looked at any health outcomes for the babies whose mothers drank either organic or non-organic milk. So they didn't actually measure 
what the newspapers were saying in their headlines. Wow, so it was a complete jump. To- yeah. It's a huge leap. I mean, I don't know what the press release said. You never, you never know, do you? The, perhaps, no. perhaps the people doing a study put out a press release that does emphasise the slightly more exciting bits of the news, where it can tell all the women who've switched to organic milk because they're pregnant and they feel that that will be better for their babies. How do they manage to take a comparison of different types of milk and make that into yet another stick to beat women with? It just highlights uh, how. Um... A lot of what we hear is not news at all, is it? We're being spun an agenda. It aren't felt we? like it when I read that. Yeah, is the study is the study quite robust in and of itself in terms of its own context, or is it quite? Yeah, a, a it's, small it's a perfectly study? good sample of what's in different kinds of milk. It's not something where you need a huge um, group. It's not a population-based study. It's what's in organic milk, what's in non-organic milk. But the thing is, you get iodine from many many dietary sources. So they didn't look at that either. They didn't look at any sort of effects of drinking the milk in the actual women, in any women. Very interesting. I, there was another study there that was quite a small cohort, 21, 21 people. The baby brain one. Yeah. yeah, I know. It's fluff, isn't it? Well, say, talk about it, though, because when I read it, I thought, if from the point of view of critiquing research, it's a really good it one. It is, and it, it really shows that kind of um, a bias in looking at results. This is the in the Journal of Clinical and Experimental Neuropsychology, um, which published a study proving what we knew all along, that there is no such thing as baby brain. So there's another thing, another, yeah, another stick, uh, okay, a frivolous stick for beating women with, um, a made-up thing that we all believe and then we go oh no I've gone so ditzy because I'm pregnant and that's just stupid nonsense it's um, confirmation bias where um, and I've I had somebody uh, a few years ago a friend wrote an article for our local NCT branch newsletter about this and what she said was um, that gave an example of a meeting has been arranged and um, several people turn up at the wrong time but only she gets accused of doing it because she's pregnant and yeah. the non-pregnant people and the men are, are just, you know, it seems to be acceptable for them to make a mistake, but not for her yeah. once she's pregnant. Yeah. It says a lot about our view of women in society and in the workplace. For sure, without a doubt. I, th- I think this piece of research in itself wasn't great, as you say, it's tiny, tiny sample size, and it didn't measure their pre-pregnancy abilities and compare the difference which seems pretty fundamental so they basically compared pregnant women with non-pregnant women as opposed to pregnant women with their pre-pregnant selves so um the other thing i've brought up for us to talk about and i know we're a little bit late to the to the i want to say party but that seems inappropriate when we're talking about the the um, very sad death of sheila kitzinger which was a couple of weeks ago now and something that I, i think people in our area of work Many people have been profoundly affected by her in in their own work. How about you, Mark? Well, you, you, you speak about being inappropriate to talk about late to the party, but she was a very flamboyant woman, uh, a very strong woman who who was not in any way inhibited about sharing her uh, her view about her advocacy for women. You know, she in episiotomy, she, she raises... Um, the issue of the impact of episiotomy upon women's psychosexual health. That's so obvious, but yet in the domain that is so masculine 
uh, sodden. Uh, she was a brave, courageous woman, and it's a sad day for uh, for women everywhere. Really. Did you ever meet her? No, and uh, I, I I regret not meeting her. We now I, I look at her pictures, those late pictures of her, and the way she does her makeup and the way she is as a person. There's a vibrance about the picture that that uh, suggests to me that her physical presence would be intoxicating. I saw her speak a couple of years ago um, when uh, her book Birth and Sex came out and it was absolutely mm. fascinating and yeah, absolutely so engaging as a speaker. Just really, really interesting. And you're right, she's not afraid to say the things that she thinks are important. Uh, yeah, she'll be sorely missed, won't she? She will, so many books. She wrote a book about crisis in, in childbirth, which was exploring birth yeah. trauma. It's, I'm surrounded by books, as I sit here, that, that she's either edited or been involved with. She's a birthing hero, you know, and uh, she'll be sorely missed. Definitely. So, Mark, tell, tell me what news you've got. What have you been up to lately? All right, only if you tell me yours. My news, I'm really busy. I'm going to be doing some peer supporter training for breastfeeding peer supporters in Oxfordshire starting next week at very short notice. And I haven't done any peer support training before, although I am trained to do it. Um, I've got an interview next week, um, so I'm not going to say anything about what that is unless I get it, in which no. case I will mention it. And um, I've got a doula client at the moment who I've been visiting. I cycled up to see her for our first visit. That was not a good idea. It was all uphill, all the way there. <laughs> cool. So, so the peer support training, uh, are people seeing an advert um, coming on that? It's a local or NCT are... branch who have raised money specifically to do this. Think that they're going to either set up a breastfeeding support group or work somehow in their own community supporting other breastfeeding mothers. So we, we do some formal training. That's awesome. You, you were at, talking about what I've been doing. You were at the workshop yes. in Reading. Uh, and I'm I'm wondering now. It's been a, f a few days since there. What what are some of the ways that looking back on it, you can um, see that the stuff we covered might be I, useful. I was very interested in your. Um, uh, certainly, at the beginning, you talked a lot about what listening is, and um, that's very relevant to my job as a breastfeeding counsellor, and particularly yeah. um, for this role as a peer support trainer, where I'm training other people. I'm training mothers to listen on a peer to peer basis and give information yeah. not advice and not talk about their own experience or evangelize and so um, I wrote down a lot of the stuff you said at that point about listening being content free on your side of the discussion and um, making a space for someone else to talk that was really useful to me the stuff we spoke about sensory based language and non-sensory based language you know that sensory based language is or sensory based observations is just seeing what's happening over there as this person speaks to you without labeling what you're seeing uh, with any kind of emotional content. Because the minute I start labeling what I'm seeing and hearing over there, I'm into a hallucination about what's wrong. And the, the very best listeners are able to suspend their labeling long enough to actually see and hear what's going on. Those, those people that don't listen particularly well are already processing what's being said and have decided what's needed in order to solve yes, the problem. And, and the, for me, the problem-solving part of that is the bit that you kind of want to put on hold, not try to yeah. problem-solve, because you're very often listening to, and this would be relevant to the subject of birth debriefing, wouldn't it? Something that you can't change, you can't 
make that go away but you can listen and as a breastfeeding counsellor I'm often find myself being in the position of being um, perhaps one of the first people who has just sat and listened to a woman about her experiences in birth and I hear a lot of birth stories even though I'm there as a breastfeeding counsellor and early breastfeeding and early parenthood yeah wow it, it positions you perfectly to be honest to be to you know to, to offer the kind of support that these fledgling families need yeah so you came to Reading and you did the workshop for lots of doulas, doulas and one lovely midwife. I'm at the University of uh, Kingston-upon-Thames next week. Right, have you sold out? Well, it's not me. It, well, I am there. It's a student right. conference. And, uh, I, you know, they think I'm talking about multi-level communication, but I'm going to be talking about the dance of uh, masculine and feminine at birth because this I'm working on that chapter and I'm working on that presentation yeah. at the moment. So I'm doing that. I've got numerous, I'll tell you what, my biggest challenge is getting the first, the second draft of the book finished for the 15th of May. And that is kind of like a big task. It's slightly beyond me, but I'm going for it like, like I can actually do yeah. it. So that's where I'm focusing most so of my attention. you're not going to try, you're going to do it. Okay, brilliant. Finally today, uh, Karen caught up with Sheena Byron, a freelance midwife consultant and another great campaigner. I'm talking to Sheena Byron and I'm going to get her to introduce herself. Um, so hi, Sheena. Hi, Karen. Hi. And nice to be chatting to you this evening. It's lovely. Thank you for agreeing to talk to us. Would you like to tell me a bit about yourself? I'll give you a brief introduction. So my name's Sheena Byram and um, I'm a midwife, I'm a practicing midwife and I've been a midwife since 1978 so that makes me quite old and um, during my career I've worked in all areas of practice so um, you know within hospital setting, community setting, I've also been a consultant midwife and I've been the head of midwifery for a short time in the organisation where I worked um, and yeah, it's been brilliant. I've just had a fabulous career, lots of ups and downs, but mainly ups and um, yeah, lots to be thankful for. It's been a huge privilege and it still is because whilst I don't catch babies anymore, I um, spend my time supporting future midwives and midwives in practice and strategically um, maternity services. And I feel that even now, um, that is that is just as important and just as special as being at the birth of a baby and seeing um, the birth of a mum. It's just all connected. So I've had an amazing time. But as I said to you before, um, you know, I have I've I've had mostly my career has been um, exceptionally positive, but I have had some sadnesses and traumas as well. So I think I've seen the whole thing really but um, maybe that's for another time yes and maybe perhaps you can't work this close to birth without it sometimes bringing you to the edge of of um, what's emotionally comfortable oh yes it's true um, so what what do you enjoy the most about your work at the moment I suppose it is that connection with midwives who are working with women and also with midwives who are trying to influence services so I just enjoy the whole support mechanism and the fact that there's a lot of midwives out there who are trying really hard to deliver a service under enormous pressure. 
And I think if I can be a bit of a helping hand in any way at all, then whether that's through social media, whether it's chatting on the phone, whether it's actually visiting their maternity unit or chatting to student midwives at um, conferences, then I just really enjoy that. And I think that because I've got a, a wealth of experience and I'm, I've been through a lot of things that I can share that now quite easily and freely with, with others. And that's what I enjoy the most. So you're taking your years of experience and giving back. Yeah. And it's just handing the baton on because we've got an exceptional amount of wonderful future midwives, student midwives that are trying really, really hard to, you know, see sense of, of what's going on. I don't think we've ever had such good student midwives. So I think it's just important for me to just hand hand things over to and another thing I really like doing is working with doulas and supporting doulas because I think that they've got a really important part to play in maximising opportunity for positive childbirth. And so I really enjoy doing that as well and with other members of the maternity team. I think I read somewhere recently a quote that if, if doulas were a drug, it would be negligent not to prescribe it. Yeah, I think the same with midwives too. You've said that the student midwives are really good at the moment. I think it's a few things. This is, it. I mean, this is not evidence-based. It's just my thoughts. But student midwives, the way they're selected now is is perhaps it's, it's improved the selection process. I also think that we've got midwives who are um, confident already when they come, student midwives, when they come into their training, you know, they've had experience in other walks of life. I think that the education that they get helps them to be personally confident in the way they um, project themselves. And I think they've got a lot of, because of social media, I'm not sure this is, this is a huge part, but I don't think it's to be neglected. I think that because of social media, they've got immediate access to experienced um, health professionals who can support them along the way and give them a voice. So I just think there's a lot of reasons why it's so, but I'm definitely impressed. And my daughter is a midwifery lecturer and she feels the same. You know, she's really enjoying being with all these student midwives who are sort of searching, reaching for the stars and really competent student midwives. Um, one of the things that prompted us um, to want to talk to you was the release of your book, The Raw Behind the Silence. And I'd love it if you could tell us what prompted you to put it together. Um, Sue Down and I work very closely together um, for many years and we sort of have regular chats where we debate what's going on. Um, Sue works internationally, so she's sort of, you know, out around the world listening to midwives and listening to women who have had babies and obviously carrying out research. And I'm, I'm, I'm more, more sort of within the United Kingdom, but um, we, we've sort of, we, we've been chatting about the, primarily about the fear that seems to be all encompassing within maternity services, whether that's, um, the, the health professional that's fearful or the women that women and families that they serve in maternity service I don't I think I don't just think it's maternity I think it's all health services but certainly um, it seems to be more enhanced and more noticeable within maternity for various reasons what we feel has happened is there's been a shift 
in the way services are delivered because of that fear, fear of the health professional and the fear of the woman, that we're doing things differently. And in, a, in an attempt to make services safer, we are, I feel, and Sue feels, that we're making them potentially more unsafe and certainly um, more um, unfriendly and uh, less nurturing. We had examples of where this was happening around the world and we wanted to capture it because we felt that it, it, it was, wasn't being collated, it wasn't being brought together. We also had wonderful examples where health professionals had really sort of stepped outside the box and really seen what was happening and tried to make things better. And those included women who were using the services and, and also those who were working in maternity services and politicians and those that weren't working, so those that were working in general healthcare, that really felt that they'd kind of tried to adapt ways of working and make it more kind and compassionate. Because it seemed to be that um, midwives and doctors, mainly midwives, I think, were trying so hard to make it safe by uh, trying to reduce risk that the risk processes were becoming so so intense, more difficult to complete, so and time-consuming, yeah. really. So it was taking the midwife away from the woman. So instead of her being sort of one-to-one and nurturing and helping the woman to feel relaxed and calm, midwives are telling us that they're so worried about filling forms in and they're worried about recrimination, so they're worried about getting into trouble, they're worried about litigation. So record-keeping becomes the central point of care. Guidelines, for example, um, aren't challenged enough, so the evidence base around a guideline that would be directing a midwife to do a particular thing, um, is the, the, the evidence that's telling them to do that isn't robust. Mm -hmm. And so midwives are finding themselves in situations where they actually can't do what they're supposed to do. And they do alert their supervisor of midwives or their manager and say, this isn't, this isn't appropriate, I can't do it. But in the interim period, it's, there's still a lot of stress yeah. and a lot of difficulty. And so what some midwives are saying and some doctors are saying that um, this is causing them to ha be... be less harmonious with with women in labor or women in the antenatal period or postnatal period so we, we wanted to collate all these stories put them together but also provide some answers because it's no good saying how bad something is without providing some kind of support so we wanted to have it as a resource yeah. like a little bit of a bible and we didn't want it to be expensive we wanted it to be affordable so that health professionals could could and buy it and use it um, and have it sort of in their yeah. pocket. I mean, we could have gone on and on because actually once we started to identify who we would like to invite to being, collaborate with the book, we, we had an enormous list of people. How did you choose who you were going to invite? Um, well, we just had to have a balance. Once we debated and looked at what we wanted, um, then we, we, went, we split the book into three themes. But to be honest, it was a, an ever-growing phenomenon, really, because as we went along, we, and we kept chatting to people, we kept including other stories or other individuals to become involved. So it sort of grew as we went along, really. It's a very forward-looking book. Well, we hope it is, and we hope that it will be utilised widely. We have had lots and lots of 
great feedback. We've had some suggestions to to do um, some some social media work with it and really get everybody engaged with it. So, you know, and we've also been approached by other countries, um, not just for translation, but also to develop some um, packages of, of training in some third world countries. So that's really exciting. I loved the diversity of different voices in the book. Oh, thank you. I think the the really eye-opening bits for, for me were the voices that I wouldn't normally hear, like the obstetrician and the anaesthetist. Yes, and it's interesting that you say that, Karen, because when we get feedback from health professionals who are working with women, policymakers and from strategic professionals, then they all say they've got their favourite chapters so for each person um the book means something different and so that's what's so good about it that you can you can take from it what you want and you know you found those those eye-opening and and others have found others really revealing so I think it's great for that reason I hope that it would have a strike a chord with everyone it is multifaceted (laughs) so you've mentioned um Twitter a couple of times I've heard you described as the queen of social media and it certainly comes up in several of the chapters people have mentioned it and in their recommendation points at the end said get on Twitter get on Facebook how do you think it is helpful in our area of work well certainly from my point of view when I took early retirement from the NHS um, four years ago I feel like I've never known as much since I've been using social media um, not only with the connections I've made and sort of that's brought with it such a, a rich resource um, from, from discussions that I've been able to develop um, and have with, with individuals. But just from the links that are shared and, you know, from the Nursing and Midwifery Council, from the World Health Organization, you know, so many different um resources that are out there on Twitter and it's such an easy thing to do so I found it particularly useful and um, I'm not sure I'm a queen of it I think I've just embraced it and sometimes when you 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 get these little names I think when you um, just seem to be doing something a lot so I don't know where that came from but but I certainly you know I certainly have found it quite phenomenal really in the way that it's helped me to stay in tune with everyone and um, and, and really, to be honest, um, Karen, that, you know, the, the book, I made a lot of connections for the book via Twitter. Mm. So, for example, Robin Youngson, who's written two chapters, who's the anaesthetist yeah. that you mentioned, um, his brilliant chapters, they're the basis of the work that he does that I found through using Twitter. I, w- I, I just came across him. And so that was incredible because it's just turned into not only um, the fact that we've been able to connect and put something out together, but it's, it's we've introduced him to so many more people and, and, and we've gained from that so much and I'm sure he has too. So is there a downside, do you think? You know, I've certainly had my, um, had experienced the downside of it a couple of times and you have to be ready for it and you have to be aware that when you put yourself out there and you're, um, you're willing to debate things in an open forum, that you're going to get people who disagree or who try to make life difficult. And so it has been upsetting. I have found some, some recent um, events have been quite 
um, quite distressing, to be honest. But, you know, I've, as within practice, when I was working as a midwife and, and working as a senior midwife and leading services, you know, there were many times when I felt distressed with things that, that were happening and sometimes out of my depth or out of control or, you know, lots of different feelings and emotions. And it's, it's the same, really. So I've just kind of pulled myself around again and thought, yes, well, you know, that's bound to happen sometime. And, and to be honest, the, 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 the wonderful thing is that there is, there's tons of support out there. So when, when individuals see that maybe you're having a difficult time, they all rally around and, and send lots of nice messages and so you know it's like a little community really but it's an enormous community and within that community there's small pockets of different and you always tend to go with with those who nurture you best and so um you have that choice to to be to be connect with the people that you want to so yeah there's whilst it's whilst there's been some difficult times it's 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 kind of shown me that there is a lot of um, support out there. So, yeah, all good, I think. All good. Just we have to be mindful of our... We have to protect ourselves sometimes, most of the time. And we also have to remember that we are... Um, whilst we're servants, we're also professionals. And we have to be- behave like that too on social media and be accountable for what we do and what we write, not just to ourselves as individuals, but also to our professional bodies like the Nursing and Midwifery Council. So that sounds like a, a really good sort of distillation of the, the social media guideline that should exist for everybody to be mindful, but also um, a good reminder for everything you do. Because as, as you say, you put yourself out there, not just on social media, but working in, a, in an area where people feel vulnerable, mothers feel vulnerable, midwives feel vulnerable and continually being mindful of that but also proud of your professional credentials. I have another question which is related to that Um, having read bits of the Kirkup report and a lot of the responses to that it does feel harder than ever to engage with people who are skeptical about our work. How can we move on from that? Well I think at the end of the day we all have to try to work together to make sure that what happened at Morecambe Bay is we, we learn lessons from it and we try to move forward positively and together to maximise the opportunities that we have to make it safer and more responsive maternity services for all women um, across not just the United Kingdom but the world. So we have to use that document um, sensibly and to try to look at where we can improve to make it better. So I think there's so much in there that we need to learn from. And um, because at the end of the day, nothing's gained from doing things on your own. And certainly through my career, the biggest achievements that we've had within the services that we provided in the in the maternity services where I worked the biggest achievements were when we all worked together the doctors the midwives the women the families and um, all the support workers everybody on the same path and trying to make it better and it's really exciting when you do that it's great it, it's certainly an area where people get very dogmatic how do you get then people with different views to work together with this shared goal in mind 
Well, I'm hoping that the maternity review that you know that the, there's there's uh, the Kirkup report and the five year um, five year view as as sort of instigated this review, and it's a huge opportunity for everybody to have a, a voice and certainly there will be individuals um, that are that are either on the panel or or out trying to influence the way that services go in the future that, that have specific views and that feel very strongly about those views so again it's just about coming to a, um, a shared ground really so that we can work properly together and make sure that everybody's voice is heard and then we come up with some solutions. So there's no room for dogma. There's absolutely not. And um, there's no room for individual um, targeting of health professionals. There's, there's, there's ab- we have to just really work collaboratively. And that's all there is to it. Just to give you an example, when, when um, I helped to develop um, birth centres in East Lancashire, where I used to work, and... When we first started with the thought processes around birth centres, we, we wanted um, three birth centres, two freestanding and one alongside. Uh, different health professionals within our service had different thoughts around that. And there were very strong and different beliefs. So eventually we, we were able to work in a way that, you know, maybe they didn't totally agree with one thing and maybe we didn't totally agree with one of their suggestions, but we, we went with it and saw how it, how it's, it came out and then we, we moved forward together. So hopefully, I'm not saying that it's going to be easy, but hopefully that will be the, the skill of the review panel will help us to come to that and have that solution in the end that will sort of be going in the same direction. The main thing is, Karen, the main thing is that mothers and families um, who are using maternity services have the biggest voice. That's the main thing. And going back to Twitter, I've, there's so many fabulous um activists on Twitter, birth activists, and these are women that aren't necessarily, um, you know, they're not, they haven't got one agenda, they just want to be listened to, they just want to have respectful, kind, compassionate care, and so, you know, we, we have to find a way of gathering all that information together, and what I've been doing is is taking down the names of those on Twitter who I can see that are trying to really support that notion, and and, and then emailing it to the review panel to make sure that these voices are heard it's beyond belief that it couldn't be everybody's goal for all we end up with is kind and compassionate care that seems fundamental it does and i think everybody does want that really but sometimes they go about it in a different way so it's it's just finding that common Mm. ground the last thing i want to ask you about um it was sad to hear about sheila kitzinger's death last week um was she much of an influence on your work well, she was really, and early in my career, she was an influence on my work without me actually knowing it, um, and because I, I learned um, actually after her death, I learned that she'd lobbied for many of the things that influenced my practice, so um, episiotomy, for example, and um, uh, upright birth, and it's just she 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 just did it in a way because she was. She wasn't a, a health professional, so I think that when you're not a health professional and you're 
in a position like Sheila was, where you had a lot of knowledge and a lot of influence because of the way you delivered that knowledge, then you're in a very powerful position. And I do think that it's women and men of that ilk um, are the ones that make the biggest difference. So she influenced me sort of uh, directly and indirectly. And then when I became a consultant midwife in the early 2000s, it was um, her work that really helped me to develop some services to support women who felt they'd had a traumatic birth experience. So I read her work and it really sort of helped me to help women. So yes, I think that, you know, not just not just by reading her work has she influenced me, but by by being just just my the whole of my midwifery career and being a woman and a mum and a grandma, she's she's had an influence on that too. So we have a lot to be thankful for for Sheila's life and um and she'll never be forgotten. Yes, she's had a, a very profound influence on maternity services in the UK, I guess, all over the world. And I think for women um, in general, so, so her work wasn't just about, for example, promoting normal birth in inverted commas. It was about empowering women to, to stand up for themselves and to say, look, this is what I want, whatever that might be. This is what I need, and it's very important for me to be listened to and and for you to hear me. So, you know, she's she sort of did a lot for um, women in general. I believe that's what she did. It was just about so many things, not just about yeah. Birth. She's one of the sort of greatest feminist writers that I've ever read. Yes, definitely, and and feminist in very in such a, a positive yeah. way. You know, she was just a great woman, great woman, and a great. I think she gave birth to so many people yeah. <laughs> that she just, you know, gave birth to belief, really. And um, yeah, just as I said, she'll never be forgotten. One of my heroes. You know, it's sad, but it's great that we've had her her work and her voice. Definitely, definitely. Thank you ever so much for talking to us, Sheena. I'm going to let you go and put your feet up now. Um, do you want to give another plug for your book? Oh, well, the book's called The Roar Behind the Silence, and there's lots of different meanings to the title. There's lots of different connotations. Um, it was Sue Down that chose the title, and she really originally wanted to describe how sometimes we we stay quiet and inside us there's a roar waiting to get out and waiting to erupt because we need to be heard and our voices have been silenced for so long. And then on another angle, it would be mean that sometimes it's important to stay silent and to stay quiet because it actually means that you are roaring. As I said, loads of different connotations to it, and we wanted it to be striking. Yeah, so it's a story. It's a, it's a book with forty-five different contributors from all around the world, and the book is based on um, the importance of kindness and compassion and respect for all women and all families that use maternity services, because we believe. That that's probably the most important time in in um, in your life when you are born, and and if we get it right then, and if mothers and families are nurtured appropriately, that there's more chance that the mother and baby will connect, and the father or partner will connect together, and be a happier, healthier family. 
um, then and in the future. So we fundamentally, we think that everything bases itself on those three concepts. So if you don't have respectful, kind and compassionate services, they're very unlikely to be safe services. We truly believe that. And I think that if anyone reads it, they will believe that too. The book is there as a resource, as a little um, handbook to open on any chapter that you want to, just whatever you feel like or you've got a concern in your practice or you're a mother having a baby and you want to be as knowledgeable as you can before you go into labour, then I suggest you know having it in your handbag. It doesn't cost very much. You can get it from Amazon and you can also get it from Pinter and Martin, who are the publishers. Or you can email me. Details of it are on my uh, website, which is sheenabyram.com. I've got a, a whole page about Roar and... Yes, you can you can access it via that. Thank you very much for your time, Sheena. It's been really interesting to talk to you. Oh, you're welcome, Karen. And thank you for thinking of me and asking me to be part of your work too. Thank you. And, uh, and we'll be in okay, touch. Thank you. And that's all we've got time for on this afternoon third episode of Sprogcast. Um, hope that you enjoyed that. We'd really love to have some feedback. If you write comments on our Facebook page, we will read them out on the next show. So you get a little name check. If you want to leave your Twitter handle there as well, we'll mention you. Um, we're going to be trying to get the podcast distributed more widely and make it more accessible to people. So any suggestions that people have for content, please come and let us know. We're listening. Um, so goodbye for now. Yeah, and it's goodbye from me. Thanks for listening. There we go. That's another one in the bag. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Mark Harris and Karen Hall. Editing and production is by Karen with technical assistance from Pete. Find us on facebook.com slash sprogcast.